Welcome to episode 2 of Quick Chat, a long farewell to our great power. Welcome to this week's episode of Quick Chat. I'm your host, Joe, and joining me is Jeremy Beeman. Uh, Welcome, everybody. Yeah, glad that you could join us. So we have a couple topics lined up today that we want to talk about. Uh, they include climate change, uh, policing in the United States, civil asset forfeiture, and uh, some things that I think about the culture. So uh, we'll go ahead and get di- uh, go ahead and dive in. Uh, we'll let Jeremy start. Jeremy, you recently wrote an article about climate change. Uh, can you kind of introduce us to some of the things that you've noticed and uh, what's been going on just countrywide with climate change? Yeah, first let me say that we're going to solve all those problems that you mentioned in the introduction. We're going to solve them all in 30 minutes or so, but especially climate change. Um, no, obviously not. Yes, I recently wrote uh, a column sort of making an apology for Scott Pruitt, the EPA administrator's proposal to have a televised climate debate, because, simply because I think it would be a great, a great thing for public discourse in this country. The issue of climate change is an issue of science, but it's also one of the most hotly contested political issues. Uh, a simple mention of the phrase climate change people recoil, whether they, they're they sort of afraid what a person's going to say uh, about how it's not real or, or what, what another person might say about taking your, your diesel engine away or, or whatever it is. Uh, it's highly political, highly contentious. And, uh, and Scott Pruitt, who uh, formerly, uh, I believe, a congressman from Oklahoma is now the EPA administrator in the Trump administration, but he propose that that we had this televised debate and there's a lot there, there are a lot of scientists uh, climate scientists who are very opposed to the idea because they think it grants legitimacy to minority opinions in the scientific community and uh and in, in my column i cite this recent washington post op-ed that was written by a couple climate scientists and, and like a historian of climate scientists together and they're talking about uh, this issue of of having a, any kind of team-based approach. They wrote this actually, I think, before Pruitt made this proposal uh, officially in the, in the press. But they're they're writing against the idea that a team-based debate or, or discussion or whatever when it comes to climate change is is not prudent because it challenges the objectivity of science and, and it challenges the ninety percent. Uh, scientists' view on the issue. So uh, here, here's just a paragraph from the, the Washington Post column. The, uh, they write, such calls for special teams of investigators are not about honest scientific debate. They are dangerous attempts to elevate the status of minority opinions and to undercut the legitimacy, objectivity, and transparency of existing climate science. Uh, now, most honest, I think honest, this is my, judge, my own judgment from talking to a couple climate scientists really but most will tell you that climate science is murky science it's difficult uh, obviously a lot of it relies on on projection um, as much as science does but for that reason there are a lot of factors that that you just can't be 100% about uh, 100% sure about uh, and a lot of science works that way obviously uh, but but what what this 
the few scientists remaining who say, well, well maybe we don't know uh, just how much uh, climate change is anthropogenic, meaning man-caused, and how much is natural. The, the few that, that are remaining are, are citing those, uh, those elements of, of climate modeling and whatever else, beside the fact that the, that the climate is, uh, is highly moody, so to speak. I mean, it, it's, it's very subject to change. But, but those who are, are willing to look at, uh, at that element of the science and to say, well, maybe we're, not, we're just not ready to, uh, to take all, uh, all petroleum-burning cars and, uh, and give out big subsidies for people to buy green cars. Maybe we're just not, we're not ready to take, uh, take that economic step yet because there are, there are so many potential factors in changing the climate. And this is, what, uh, this is what a televised debate would do. It would have people coming from, obviously, from different sides of the political spectrum, but um, you'd also have different kinds of scientists who each have, have their, own, their own biases. As, uh, I spoke to... Uh, to one scientist who said that climate scientists are human beings. They're not, they're not gods. Um, they're not, uh, they're not unable to have, to have biases and presuppositions and, and political preferences and so forth. And, and th- those obviously cloud people's science on people on the left and on the right. And that's why it's important to have all of the information in, in a public forum like this. I mean, the, the information is, on the internet, but it, I mean, if you've tried to read the IPCC reports or any scientist individual reports, they're tough to get through. Um, there's a lot of uh, graphs which tend to be easy sometimes, but uh, these graphs are not easy. Uh, but, but the information is there on the internet and elsewhere, but, it's, but people just aren't going to spend time really trying to do the research to find, uh, to find the full spectrum spectrum of, of views on this. So that's why I think a televised debate would be really good for, uh, for the public discourse around this issue. Yeah, I mean, that sounds good to me. I, I don't know as much about climate change. I haven't interviewed climate uh, change or climatologists like you have uh, throughout your time writing articles for Washington Post and College Fix or whatever else. Um, but to me... Examiner. It, say again? Examiner, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but for me... And maybe this is the way that science is just kind of uh, protruded into our society, right? Uh, almost like an infallible thing. If, if a majority of scientists agree on a certain topic, it's no longer up for debate. Uh, so they want to silence those that disagree. Um, yeah, it goes back to, to the 19th century. Yeah. So what, what do you think will be the best thing to come out of uh this debate. I mean, you mentioned a second ago that it would bring uh, the difference of opinion to the public square, which I think is a great idea. Uh, but at a certain point, I mean, n- not that I don't want people to question scientists. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, but people already uh, test or already question the veracity of vaccines. Uh, what's to say that very few people? <laughs> that's true. That's true. Even fewer. Than, even few- so, so that go ahead and finish your question. I kind of anticipate it, but but go ahead. Basically, what I'm saying is, do you think this would benefit science in the long run to start having it run in the public square instead of in the lab, uh, privately? Well, first of all, most scientific discourse takes place in journals and right, right. academia, uh, and and I mean it makes its way down 
to the lay public in news reports and whatever else. But I, I would contend that that the issue of climate change is a lot different than vaccines. It's a lot different than uh, the study of, uh, of correlations between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. Um, those cases, I mean, are they're they're highly the cases are highly present and what i mean by that is they're examining the human body and how it reacts to things and it's looking for correlations and and, and evidence and and using using uh deductive reasoning i mean if you listen if you breathe acrid smoke into your lungs over time your your lungs are going to to start to become deficient i mean it that seems highly reasonable uh that something like that would happen uh, just really quick to play devil's advocate, right? Uh, so yeah, what if we're do. what if we're pumping uh, acrid smoke into the atmosphere? Wouldn't that over time uh, cause some sort of harm? And, and I know I know the que- I know the question yeah. for you is not if climate change is real or not. That's not really the question. Uh, the question is whether men cause the majority of climate change or if it's just a natural phenomena. It has to, and and, and the question has to be that nuanced because it's. It's not even do men do men contribute. It's how much are men responsible, and what are the the foregoing implications? So it seems like you're asking for my my perspective on the issue. Um, climate change, meaning just generally, that is the climate warming. The trends seem to be obvious that it is. So I certainly believe that climate change is real. I certainly believe in anthropogenic climate change, even that that men, in their use of uh, of fossil fuels and whatever else, and industrialization and all that contributes. And I'll tell you why I believe that because um, <clears throat> Dr. John Christie, the Alabama State climatologist who I've spoken with, he wrote a column years ago, and he's he's what what you would call a climate change skeptic because he talks about how little we can know for sure about who is who is guilty so to speak but he but and he, he cites this uh, this element in, in this column that we know from small controlled spaces that the more uh, co2 and other other warm gases that we that we pump into them they they warm the general atmosphere and they've obviously tested this in in, uh, in testing rooms and whatever else so we know that on us on a sort of small scale does it mean the same glo- you know, on, on a global scale? And I think it, it does, and, I, and even he concedes that it does. So it's not, it's not to say that by, by asking for this debate, is, this televised debate, is not necessarily questioning the, those premises for me. For others, it may be. I can't speak for the president or for Rick Perry uh, or for Scott Pruitt. But for a lot of scientists like John Christie, who would say that, that, you know, we have some reason to believe with certainty that men do contribute. We just don't know how much. And that's what this discussion, I think, could really get at. And also the problem is, is people don't make distinctions like, like we're trying to make here when we're talking about climate change. Um, they, they may look at some, some scientists or, or, or people on the political left look at the president's view and conflate it with all the, the view of all people on the right and say, well, they don't believe in climate change. Or like Brett Stevens, who is formerly at the Wall Street Journal, now at the 
New York Times, his inaugural column in the New York Times was called the, the climate of complete certainty. And he's saying that there's essentially, he made this, this analogy to uh, Hillary Clinton's certainty in her campaign about winning and the, the, the certainty around climate science. And it obviously wasn't a direct correlation, but his point was well taken that a lot of times we think that we're somewhat infallible, even in the name of science. You take 90% of scientists, that's well over half, they must be right. Um, but, but you really have to look further, um, especially, especially, and this is what Stevens said in his response to a lot of the comments of that column. This is what uh, people like Rand Paul said, have, have said, that, that the, e- the economic implications of this are so vast. If we, if we start to move so quickly uh, and just giving out subsidies and closing coal plants and, uh, and whatever else, we only have limited resources. And so we have to do it prudently. We have to be sure enough. And the only way we can do that is if we come and have this, this real, I think, sort of public discussion so people can be more informed because people are uh, really just, I think, looking to their senators and representatives or their, their political pundits, those on, on their ideological side. And they don't really care to listen to uh, to the others, and that goes for that goes for everyone, really. I mean, I'm not making too many distinctions here, right? Uh, that sounds right. I mean, getting it in the public eye, seeing uh, certain ways that man may be a greater part of this than we think, maybe a less part than we think, uh, but it, there is certainly something towards working towards that. I, and I agree with what Rand Paul is saying that. Or, and whoever else, that we can't just suddenly hand out subsidies, we can't just suddenly uh, cut our entire infrastructure to, to work around climate change. Uh, it is something that's going to take time. I mean, it, it, we can't jump right into it. Uh, and this uh, public debate over climate change and uh, its implications would, to me, it sounds like a good first step uh, to understanding how we could possibly uh, solve the problem in the future. Mm-hmm. So Certainly. Uh, any uh, any last things you want to add on that uh, before we go on? Well, there's just there's just kind of an arrogance in this this column this column, not mine. Uh, <laughs> Is that arrogant? The, the, <laughs> yeah, the, like for here's another here's another paragraph. They they say if you're a climate scientist, you've likely spent years of your career going down such rabbit holes uh, of you know rabbit holes being the the contrary perspective, evaluating quote natural causes and quote no warming claims. Uh, you've considered and debated these claims. You've put them through their paces and so forth and so on. So it's a, sort of a rhetorical tool. They're, they're trying to convince their readers that that the debate has been exhausted. We have looked at the claims of the, the minority scientists, those in the minority view, of course. I mean, and they're illegitimate, but they're those minority views are just not present enough, I think. And, and listen, if, if we had this debate, I'm sure less than 1% of people will be convinced of, uh, of a more nuanced perspective of this issue, but I still think it's important to do because, uh, because it's the right thing to do. Uh, Too few people know, uh, know enough about this issue, I think, and they're being misled to some degree. Yeah. All right. Um, so we're talking about public square. Uh, the next item on the agenda is policing. Uh, this is, we joked at the beginning that we could solve problems. I feel like 
of all the things we're talking about tonight, this is the one that we're not going to solve, at least in uh, this 30-minute setting. Uh, climate change, obviously, being the other big one there. Um, but there have been a couple incidents over the past few years of uh, you know, corrupt policing. Uh, one comes to mind recently uh, is the Australian, Australian lady being shot um, unarmed, obviously. And, and that's been going on throughout the year, uh, these cases. Uh, so, Jeremy, this is your topic. Bring us into this. Tell, what are you thinking about policing um, in general? Well, I picked up a couple of books recently because I really wanted to better understand this issue. Uh, I picked up the War on the War on Cops by Heather McDonald. She's a, a policy writer at the Manhattan Institute. I picked up also that she her perspective is obviously that there is a war on cops. That the subtitle of the book is how the new attack on law and order makes everyone less safe. Less safe. She goes back to Ferguson uh, and talks about talks about how, how police have been been threatened uh, and and how crime is, is on the increase in many cases, in many cities. And on the opposite perspective, I picked up Policing the Black Man, a perspective of Dubai, who is a professor of law at American University. And she, these essays from several who write about criminal justice and so forth, they take the contrary perspective that uh, the criminal justice system is rife with implicit bias, unfair sentencing, unfair policing, that, that black men and black boys are treated disparately in the criminal justice system. And I also have been reading a book called Black Lies Matter by a guy named Talib Starks who, who kind of combats... Uh, combats Davis's premise and sides a little more with Heather McDonald that that police are under attack. But not only do they do that, and this is this is where I think the the debate has not been taken care of, I guess you could say, or, or not been done responsibly. McDonald and Starks, to some degree, divert the conversation away from police and make it about. Uh, make it about about black on black crime in, in big cities for example uh starks he has a lot of nifty terms that he comes up with really well i mean the, the title of the book is black lives matter i mean that's clever in its own right but he he talks about the, the movement black lives matter he calls them or he says that they have taken a hypocritical oath which is a play on words obviously of the hippocratic oath that doctors take and what that oath is that they're going to ignore all of the crime, black on black crime in inner cities, and talk only about the cases of, of police shooting, uh, shooting black men, whether they be unarmed or whatever. And I think, t- to some degree, I mean, there is some kind of discussion there on that issue. But what I don't appreciate about Starks and McDonald does this too, to some degree. What I don't appreciate appreciate about their argument is that they divert away from the cases of obvious, um, obvious mistreatments or obvious bias or obvious injustice uh, with the police and, and others, they divert the conversation away from that to the conversation of black on black crime. And it seems to be like a dodge and, that, and, I, and really a, a logical fallacy. But I actually went to a discussion the other night here in DC. Uh, Davis was talking about her book at, at this bookstore, Politics and Pro. She had a couple of her writers there too, 
because uh, the book is a compilation of essays. But they were talking about uh, just about the book and, and their chapters. And the present theme is really that that the criminal justice system is is full of implicit bias, and that comes from from the history of slavery and Jim Crow, uh, and, and it plays into the present day. And it manifests itself in many different ways. It manifests itself on the streets with police being more uh, more likely to go after or to arrest or to pat down uh, black people, Latino people in some cases too, uh, more than, than whites. And also in the prosecution of crime. And this is, this is something that is uh, very compelling to me. I sort of, by the way, I sort of suspended judgment, so to speak, on this issue to try to, to gather in all the perspectives. And, and once I finish, I'll, I'll make more of a, a conclusion. But I think both groups have legitimate arguments here. I, I think, um, especially the, the argument that I was about to discuss that Angela Davis makes quite often is that in sentencing, the the attorneys, the city attorneys, or if they're state or federal attorneys, whoever is prosecuting uh, criminals, whether they be drug criminals or whatever else, they wield an enormous amount of prosecutorial discretion, which means that they can choose, depending on, on what the crime is, they can choose what to charge the, uh, the defendant with. Uh, Heather McDonald talks about this in, in, in some of her columns, the Manhattan Institute, also that there are there's an ability depending especially if it's a drug crime we'll take drug crime for example if you have if you're carrying uh, uh 50 pounds or so of marijuana and you're caught you would be considered to be trafficking that but if you have more than a certain amount then that that would be uh that would charge a mandatory minimum sentence and you can plead down depending on who who the prosecutor is and who wants to charge you and, and your criminal record and, uh, and even your disposition, if you're penitent, so to speak, or not, you can be charged with a lesser crime, uh, a misdemeanor crime, if, even if you're committing a felony in some cases. So attorneys, the, the, the prosecuting attorneys wield an enormous amount of power. And if, and Davis obviously argues that there is, uh, this this bias, but if there is bias, then it it, it can horribly affect uh, those communities who are being discriminated against because of this power they they wield. So it's it's a very very uh, difficult issue, I think. Yeah, I mean, and it's not. I don't know. It, it seems weird, right? Because this is something that's been going on uh, really since Ferguson. I can't remember. Was it Brown? Was uh, was the person from Ferguson that was uh, shot? Michael Brown. Yeah. Michael Brown. So it's really started with Michael Brown in Ferguson. Uh, uh, an obvious. Uh, well, that's been the most recent sort of uprise. I mean, even Rodney King back in the nineties. Uh, yeah, back in the nineties. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, Philando Castile. I would say it's probably the most recent. Um, where where the cops they they got off. Uh, you know. You're familiar with the story, right? Very familiar, yeah. Yeah, so I would say that's probably the most recent uh, person of color 
that's happened. The Australian lady the other day, uh, obviously, is probably the most recent, at least in the national square. I, I may be speaking from ignorance here if, uh, if something's happened in other parts of the country. But it, it seems like it's almost a recurring problem. And, and recurring in a way, I, I heard a statistic today. It's like, uh, we'll say 75% uh, of cops are doing a great job. People aren't, aren't getting injured. Uh, if that was a doctor, uh, if one in four patients of a doctor uh, ended up dying under the doctor's uh, under the doctor's surgery or during surgery that would be they would be considered bad like they would not be considered a good uh, a good doctor and uh, there's some things that play a difference in policing obviously it's much more um, there, there's a lot of raw emotion especially when it comes to uh, to to shooting guns and, and trying to, to protect from people who know that would actually harm a police officer. Uh, right. So I, I would say there's a little give and take there. Um, but I still think it, it's a problem, and it, it seems like a problem. Uh, but I don't know how, I don't know how to handle it. Like, like you said, I don't know the arguments as well as you do. Um, but some people say, uh, you know, it's, it's, we're not focusing on the, you know, the, the black-on-black crime, so we're not looking at uh, crime within poor communities. And then some people are saying that, that's not the problem, it's the court's problem. Uh, you know, crime's crime, right? And at a certain point, we do have to, to punish it. Um, but I don't think, and you're brought up drugs, you know, I don't think that the punishment should so far exceed the offense uh, that someone's serving, you know, 30 years for possessing um, X amount of pounds of marijuana. You know, however bad people may think that is, uh, that's 30 years of a person's life gone because for a moment they were holding that stuff. So it's a very nuanced argument, like you were saying. I just don't have a – I don't know enough to really contribute a lot. Yeah, we, sh- we should talk about sentencing and whatever else in another discussion. Yeah. Excuse me, but you know, your point about the doctors is well taken, and I think part of the problem is, with, with how this discussion is being had is, is that it's framed, much like climate change, much like tons of issues, it's framed as being pro-police or anti-police. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I, I think, listen, cops are our servants. We're thankful for them, but they do work for the public. And, and if they are making mistakes, if, like in the case, I, th- I think, you know, Flando Castile was a big, big mistake. I think yeah. Terrence Crutcher in, in, in Oklahoma was a big mistake. Yes. Uh, Walter Scott, I think, was a mistake. You can make you debate the debates about any of those cases, but... Um, when when police are using lethal force when they shouldn't have we should I think ask questions and we should prod the conversation about, about how they're handling those situations I mean obviously those cases are high stress situations if they, they think their, their lives are in harm um, then, then they use lethal force if they think they're being right. threatened right. or whatever I completely understand that, but knowing that, um, we can't justify police malpractice by that. Correct. Um, I think I think you do a disservice, and I really you devalue life. Especially like, people like like Freddie Gray in Baltimore. I mean, McDonald's discussion, she, and she uses a lot of facts, and and I'm convinced by a lot of elements of her argument, but but she really pits it out as as just. The whole conversation is, is being anti-police, mm-hmm. and she and she uses language 
to to kind of condemn others altogether. She refers to Freddie Gray, who was uh, who was a convicted criminal many times over. I think. I mean, she even lists out his def- his offenses, or maybe Starks does that in his book. And there's like twenty of them, and she calls him the drug dealer, Freddie Gray, in order to define him as that. And even if those are his crimes, that doesn't devalue his life. Correct. And I think that that people who are think that they're defending the police end up really condemning others uh, too strongly. I mean, yes, in many cases these are criminals, some cases violent criminals, but we have to really, really look at each case, I think, and distinguish and ask, uh, as was the case in, in, in Minnesota recently and in the, ca- in the case of uh, Philando Castile, which also is in, in uh, Minnesota, why are they... Why, why would they have shot? Why did that cop shoot Philando Castile? We saw the, the tape, and it's really disconcerting. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, you know what you are saying a second ago about listing the offenses of, uh, of you know, someone that was shot and killed. Um, well, Gray wasn't shot and killed. He was killed in the back of the, of the van. But, yeah, yeah I mean. R- right. Um, but, but what I'm thinking, at least, and I've always had a problem with people doing that, because especially if someone has served their time we can't we can't really define them by that anymore, or at least we're like proven innocent or proven not guilty in the court of law. We can't keep defining someone by something they did, you know, in their youth, right, or something that they did two years ago. Um, and that certainly doesn't justify uh, them being shot and killed because two years ago um, they were involved in some sort of crime. So, another thing that that Davis brings up. And this could be, be the uh, sort of the last point on this issue. We can move on. Um, but she, she brings up the – oh, I lost my train of thought. She brings up the issue – and maybe we'll come back to it, Joe. Well, unless you have anything else to say on police. Uh, I, have, I, I, have something, I have something to say about police, but it's a little it's, – it's in a different world. Civil asset forfeiture. And, you know, uh, oh, great. Yeah, right. Uh, so recently um, – Jeff Sessions repealed some Obama era um, restraints for civil asset forfeiture. If you're not aware of what that is, that's essentially if a police officer stops you and uh, believes that what you have is involved in a crime, they can take it and then turn around and use it, uh, especially if it's money, they can use it um, uh, to purchase weapons, to purchase vehicles, whatever else. Um, I'm specifically. I, I want to start with a case uh, that occurred, or at least the Supreme Court heard it uh, a few months ago in March of 2017. Uh, the justice was Justice Thomas, uh, but essentially, a gentleman in Texas uh, was stopped uh, in his. Trunk. Oh, they didn't hear this case. They, they actually didn't take it. They didn't take the case. That's correct. This is his uh, yeah. Satoriari. Uh, I'm not entirely sure how to say it. Essentially, saying this is why we're. Oh, yeah. yeah, this is why we're not taking the case. Um, but uh, it gets up to the Supreme Court. He, he reads through it. They don't take it. But essentially, it's a man in Texas. He gets pulled over by a police officer. Uh, the police officer um, somehow gets this gentleman to open his trunk. In his trunk, he had about uh, $200,000 in cash. Uh, the policeman seized it uh, and uh, took it, right, uh, essentially. And he couldn't do anything about it. So uh, the the mother of the gentleman who was pulled over claimed that it was money from a, uh, a cell uh, in uh, Pennsylvania for a house that they sold there. 
Uh, and so, um, they the the police claimed that they couldn't find reason to believe that it was uh, due to the sale of a house, which I would imagine is a pretty easy thing to track. Uh, and then kept kept the money and can buy things. And this has been going on forever. The, the reason it's even legal is because it was happening at the time uh, of the U.S.'s founding, right? So civil asset forfeiture back then was usually, generally used against pirates and smugglers. Uh, it was never used in land-based trade, which is something interesting considering what it's used for now. Uh, but if uh, a custom officer had reason to suspect that the uh, items were gained through smuggling or through piracy, they could claim the items in the port uh, and, you know, use them without having to pay whatever to the to the captain or to the company that they were a part of. And so this has kind of morphed into a, a weird uh, issue because now it's people, it's police officers um, forcing people uh, to open their vehicle, which is something you don't have to do, right, unless the, the officer has uh, something, they establish something beyond reasonable doubt. Right, they have, or at least a warrant, right? Yeah, a um, And then they take that thing. Um, if they can take cars, they can take cell phones. Uh, there's one story I read in the New Yorker. Um, it was a gentleman. Uh, they took his, uh, they took his cell phone, they took his car, and arrested him for the night, uh, and then released him on the side of the road without his phone. They didn't give his phone back. They didn't give his card back. Uh, and then, and then essentially he was just out to dry. Luckily, uh, he managed to, through a pay phone or through borrowing someone's cell phone, uh, get in contact with someone that could give him a ride. But anyways, um, what I'm trying to get at is to me, this seems like such an overreach of what policing is supposed to be. And it, it seems to me to be a definite violation of our, our, our rights, right? Our laid down in the bill of rights, right? They can't search and seize without un, unreasonable, um, unreasonable, uh, uh, doubt, right? Beyond reason, uh, beyond reasonable doubt, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, there has to be a right to due process and do law, uh, self incriminate I mean, there's only things I feel like this is so wrong. So when I was reading about Jeff Sessions repealing some of this stuff, they, they kept using language or the bill uses language essentially saying there's going to be more oversight, right? We're going to make sure that the money was taking was actually used uh, in some sort of illegal activity, and that, and I think uh, it does provide recourse as well for those who, those who think they're they've been their property's been ju- unjust unjustly seized, correct. which I think is, <laughs> I mean, it's better than nothing. I agree, but I, I think the problem lies in the fact that it was seized in the first place. Um, I and I, I, these are it's just two reports that I read. I so take these statistics as you know as a grain of salt. Uh, but the majority of people stopped are um, Latino or African American and black. Uh, and I will say the majority of it does happen on uh, drug highways, like where where people are known to smuggle drugs throughout the states. Um, so there's that. Uh, but that's something I don't know. I mean, it seems like a violation of uh, your citizens' basic rights. Um, and so when Sessions repealed this, my first thought was like, how is this legal in the first place? Um, well, the, go ahead, Jeremy. The, yeah, they, they do have well, – this is mainly a, a state and local practice. And the, the federal government has gotten involved in the past, either sharing assets or expanding the ability of, the, uh, of, of seizing assets. And <clears> – <throat> And different states have different policies, but yeah, but the the policy suggestion that the that the AG made was was to expand it and 
to allow states, I think, to use federal, to expand their ability using federal law uh, to seize these assets. And yeah, it is, there, there are cases, and I think it depends upon states, and, and I don't know how the, the, the federal courts have dealt with this so much, but there are obviously cases like the ones you've mentioned already. I know Senator Paul has, has tells about five or six different stories of, uh, I think this, this 15 year old kid, uh, commits a drug crime, has some pot or, or crack or whatever it is. And, and his grandmother's house gets, gets taken. Right. Um, and, and as, as he was saying, the grandmother could have been the stabilizing force in the family and you've taken her house. Uh, and, and, you know, it just, it seems unjust. And I think many cases, many cases, it is a complete violation. And that's why uh, the Senator and Senator Kamala Harris of California have, have introduced this, this piece of legislation. Yeah. There are many, um, uh, there has been bipartisan um, efforts against this bill. I I do want to add, I mean, it's not, you know, a very Republican versus Democrat type of bill. It's, uh, people like Rand Paul, you brought up. Uh, who was the other gentleman you brought up? Uh, Kamala Harris, Senator, oh, female. Uh, female, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and no so there, there are a couple people that are standing up against this, which I think is good. Uh, there's one more, one last thing I kind of want to add uh, at the end. So at the end of uh, Justice Thomas's uh, soteriori, uh, he says... What's his opinion? His opinion? It, well, his opinion is that... Uh, that the court couldn't take this because of some uh, historical forfeiture laws. Uh, and he, he does list a couple things throughout, like these forfeiture operations frequently target the poor. Um, this is a system where the police can seize property with limited judicial oversight. Um, but for some, they didn't take it for some reason. I don't think the court deemed this is this is what he says specifically about the about the petitioner. The court deems this testimony insufficient to establish that she was in fact an innocent owner, uh, and so because of that, uh, they didn't take it up to the Supreme Court. But there's language throughout, like I was just men- mentioning a second ago, that kind of suggests that if they get a good case, one that they could really argue with, they that they would take it. Um, so th- this is how he ends. This is section four at the end of his uh, soteriori. It says, unfortunately, petitioner raises her due process arguments for the first time in this court. As a result, the Texas Court of Appeals lacked the opportunity to address them in the first instance. I therefore concur in the denial of the soteriori. Whether this court's testament of the broad modern forfeiture practice can be justified by the narrow historical one is certainly worthy of consideration in greater detail. So it doesn't sound, at least to me, and you know, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a Supreme Court um, aficionado, right? But the language throughout, and the language especially at the end, suggests to me that if a good case uh, comes up to the Supreme Court about civil asset forfeiture, that they'll take a good look at it um, constitutionally to see whether it can be justified. Uh, because, in my opinion, a, a historical practice that seizes the goods of pirates and smugglers uh, is not... Um, a good enough reason to, to take money out of someone's trunk because you think it may be used in drug trafficking. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And, and it does, it does affect minority communities disparately and, uh, and in, in many cases is unjust. So, yeah. All right. That's, uh, 
that is all we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're already at 40 minutes, so we're a little bit over the time that we were trying to stick already, to. Already, my goodness. Yeah. Um, thanks for joining us this time around. Jeremy, uh, I took your advice last time, and I read through some of the Federalist Papers, and they are good. They are some good stuff. Actually, I wrote a blog post uh, yesterday, and I quoted uh, the first one in it. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, so t- did you read? Did you happen to read any um, any founding documents like that? Did you follow your own exhortation? I perused Federalist One, yeah, because you because you made me. <laughs> yeah, well, you made me. We can look at it that way. Uh, any final wisdom that you want to leave us with before we go? Well, share share us what share us what you cited from Federalist One. Okay, uh, so my blog post, uh, and this was a topic we were going to try to get to tonight, but we didn't uh, we didn't manage. Uh, but I was going to I was discussing how <laughs> I've recently read a biography on Julius Caesar. Uh, and one thing that struck me was that Julius Caesar was a very much a product of his time. He grew up um, in a cultural and political climate that was crazy. I mean, constant civil war just about his entire life. Uh, and in, in his early life, these men, Sulla, Senna, and Marius, kind of knocked down the doors to a dictatorial, uh, in perpetuity position, right? So just an emperor. And so he really just followed in the footsteps. So I, I kind of wrote, uh, you know, what if... Um, what if someone does that today in modern America? Not, not there's. I mean, Rome and America are very different politically. I mean, we may be both called oh, republics. Not. They are fairly different. I they're mean, precisely the same. No, <laughs> I don't know if you're being sarcastic or not, but the Senate, their Senate is not our Senate in, in the slightest. Um, but, but I was writing about whether or not someone would do that in America, and that's something we have to be careful for. So, anyways, the line I quoted from the Federalist was the line about. Uh, how um, and I, I'm quoting from memory because I don't have it pulled up in front of me, so forgive me if I misquote. Essentially what it says is that if two people on opposite ends of political parties, um, the more angry they become, the more uh, outraged that their, that their cries and accusations become throughout the thing, and that can lead to demagoguery uh, and populism, which is the first, as Hamilton writes, is the first step to despotism. So that was basically the quote, and that's basically what I was looking at in, in my short blog there. But, um, yeah, the Fed, it's a good, and I think there's a lot of modern implications because we see this with Bernie Sanders. We, see, we saw this with Donald Trump, and even now um, it's becoming more and more polarized instead of a temperate, rational voice stepping into the void and uh, speaking sense into a, uh, into a difficult time. Occupy that space, Joe. Step up. <laughs> well, hopefully my blog post uh, was part of that step. So. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. All right, Jeremy, any final thoughts you want to leave us with? No final thoughts. All right. All right, everyone, thanks for joining us this week. Uh, we'll see you around.